You're listening to audio from The Village Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or give to our ministry, please visit us at thevillagechurch.net. God called Abraham out of the chaos of the ancient world to make through him a chosen people to bless all nations. Then God delivered his people from Egypt, but they refused to enter into the land set aside for them and wandered in the desert. God gave them the law to consecrate them as his people, and eventually they entered the promised land. But they forgot his law and worshiped other gods. God called judges and prophets to warn and encourage them. He established David as king and there was peace and prosperity, but they forgot him again and the kingdom fell. So God sent Nehemiah to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. He sent Ezra to remind them of his law and the temple was rebuilt. Yet again, they turned from God and embraced the world around them. But God, longing for their whole hearts, called forth his prophet Malachi to remind them of his faithful love and of the kingdom that was coming. Good morning, church family. We are the living goods, and we are your goers in Japan. My name is David, and this is my wife, Sarah May. And if you'd like to know a little bit more about what we're doing in Japan, we're going to have a meeting this afternoon at 3 p.m. in Suite 165. We'd love to see you there. Our scripture reading this morning will be from Malachi chapter 1, verse 6, through chapter 2, verse 9. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now, entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. 
For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, guys. Hey, that's a lot, right? It's a lot? Okay, we're going to be all right. Just promise you we're going to be all right. Timothy Treadwell, I don't know if you know that name. He was like an all-American high school swimmer and diver. A bit eccentric, but, but an athlete. If you count swimming and diving as athletic, which I do. What? Which I do. Like I do, you've seen those, I mean, they're yoked, those, like, like they, yeah, he, he was legit. He, in fact, he was so legit, he actually got a full ride to swim and dive at Bradley University, and many had some, many just had some hiccups in life, things went bad for him there. Uh, I don't have time to tell his full story, but uh, he spirals at Bradley uh, and becomes addicted to alcohol on into heroin. Uh, and his life's just absolutely falling apart. He hops on a plane with a friend of his to go to Alaska. Maybe the crisp air will clear his head and heart. And, and he gets to Alaska, and him and his buddy are uh, like packing uh, deep into the back country. Uh, and as they're hiking, they run uh, into a large male grizzly bear. And, and that's a terrifying moment. I know some of you are closer to my age. You've seen Legends of the Fall, and so you're pretty sure that you'd like a good death like Tristan, and you wish you saw a grizzly bear, and you would... Uh, I know you think that, but uh, in, in light of, uh, you know, 1,500-pound mammal that's been created by God simply to kill stuff, uh, my guess is you'd be a little bit more cowardly than you sound uh, after you watch um, Brad Pitt. And, and so uh, he sees him, and it, and it becomes this kind of transcendent moment in his life. In fact, he, he never does heroin again. He actually leaves alcohol behind and he becomes hyper fixated 
on grizzly bears. And what he begins to do is as often as he can in uh, the summer months in Alaska, he hops on a plane, he buys a camera, and he heads into the backcountry to find this group of grizzly bears. And he makes camp uh, where he knows they are, and he takes zero precautions against the bears. He cooks his food out and he keeps it out. He's trying to woo them in. And he is warned at every turn that these grizzly bears are not Teddy Ruxpin. Uh, they're, They're not something to be cuddled with or to be trifled with. He is warned repeatedly, both written and verbal, that there is coming a day where these grizzly bears will kill you and anyone else you have brought in. The scenario will be they will not have had enough food to hibernate and you are food to them. And that tent is just like a Chipotle wrapper. It is not going to defend you. And so he's told, you need hot wire, you need bear spray, you should have a rifle. But Timothy is convinced that not only uh, are these grizzly bears not going to do that, but they have actually accepted him as one of them. And so it's not uncommon. You can watch all sorts of videos. He actually gets the name Grizzly Man. That that actually becomes his name. He's like being interviewed uh, for television and documentaries are made. And you can watch this this mentally ill man. Uh, Like, cuddling up with thousand pound grizzlies, like scratching their ears. And here's it. Anybody else would like to do that if it was safe? I do. I think grizzly bears are amazing. I think that would be, I'd like to, I'd like to go a couple of rounds with one. I know how it would end. I'm saying like new heaven, new earth. Like I'm not going to die doing it. Right. Uh, And so on October 5th, 2003, Timothy brings his girlfriend, Amy out there and they spend a week with the grizzlies hanging out. They're shooting videos. They try to get out early. They decide, uh, you know, the, the salmon aren't running as, as much as they used to. I can clearly tell that my, the bears that, that love me, that have adopted me as one of their own, they, they have gone on, this is a new group. They're a little bit more aggressive, but we should get out of here. So he goes to the airport. He tries to get a ticket out. And, and it just doesn't happen. Like there's some situations that, that, that raise up and he's unable to get a ticket. And so this man decides to go back. And just camp where they had been camping. And if you know this story now, you know how this story ends. About a week later, uh, an airplane comes to pick up Timothy and his girlfriend, Amy, and can't find them. They find their campsite completely destroyed. They find human remains around the campsite. And they found, is this too much? I'm sorry if it is, but I need it for this text. (laughs) They find a giant female grizzly that aggressively works towards them, that they have to put down, and an autopsy reveals that Timothy and Amy are actually inside of this grizzly. That story is this text. You tracking with me? That story is this text. You you have this massive, powerful, unstoppable, with your hands kind of force that draws you to it in its majesty, but if you pat it on its head or try to cuddle with it, could absolutely kill you. But if you showed honor to it and respect to it, you could gaze upon it, marvel at it, and even have your heart stirred up to worship concerning it. And yet what Timothy does and what Timothy was guilty of is something you and I can be guilty of, which is to not fear the Lord, uh, to not honor him, to not show him respect, but to kind of put him into categories like our homeboy. You see that church, that shirt the kids used to wear, like Jesus is my homeboy? That's a bad category to put the King of Kings and Lord of Lords in. 
right? The lion and the lamb. Uh, And so 2023 sensibilities uh, are that like Jesus is more like Tinkerbell than he is the lion of Judah. Jesus isn't, but I mean, just pat him on his head. Get around to him when you get a chance. Don't you worry about that sugar Jesus. But the one in the Bible is actually quite terrifying. And, And the Bible is going to on repeat say this to us. Go ahead and keep your half-hearted worship. In fact, he says it here and he says it in other places. I wish somebody would just shut the doors. This makes me sick. You giving me your leftovers? I'm the king of kings and lord of lords. And you, bring, do you, do you remember the text? He's like, try giving that to your governor. See what happens. Try, try giving to that some human institution. Your leftovers, your little bitty crumbs throw to me like I should now be grateful that you're giving me this amount of time. This is a heavy text. In fact, I, I think you can even look out at culture and see what's going on simply around this idea of the fear of the Lord. Let me read this one to you. This is Isaiah 29, 13 and 14. And the Lord said, because this people, that's his people, draw near me with mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. What he means there is, you don't really fear me. You might, you know, you might know the phrase, but you don't know what that means and you certainly aren't practicing it. Look what happens when we honor him with our mouth and, and, and honor him with our lips, but our hearts are far from him. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people and wonder upon wonder. Now here's where, we were talking about proof texting last week where we just snatch a verse out of the Bible. This would be a great example. I mean, you might be tempted to snatch that out and go, I'm gonna do, put that on a coffee cup. I'm gonna do wondrous things, or like wonder upon wonder am I gonna do for you? Like, right, you're like, this is, a great, this is my favorite verse ever, but let's put it in its context, right? I'm sorry, I'm a little bit out of control. And the, here's the wonder that he'll do when we don't fear him and we give him lip service. The wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Here's what he says. Don't fear me. Give me leftovers. Everybody behaves stupidly with a great deal of stupidity. I know there's kids in the room. Forgive the strong language. He'll use the word fool. It can be translated idiot. It can be like this is heavy language that the smartest people among you will start sounding like morons and the most discerning will not discern well. I just think look up and glance around at our culture as a whole. The people who have the mic, the the people who are in positions of power, the wise men, the discerning, what's their vision of human flourishing? Like I don't know anybody on the right or left that's looking at where we are right now going, nailing it. I mean, both sides are like, this is broken badly. And, And this is a part of what happens when the people of God in particular fail to fear his name. The reason why there's so little difference between us and the world around us is because for many of us, Jesus is far more homeboy than King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Very little fear of his name and a whole lot of kind of like, he's, he's good, you know? And here's the kind of mindset. It's like, I'm the exception. Like, I'm exempt. I'm no different than most. God overlooks my motives. He overlooks my words or actions. What is that except patting a bear on the head? 
He doesn't care that I sin like this. He doesn't care that I tolerate this aspect of my life. He doesn't care that he's, Jesus, he's like, just spirit sprinkle like grace all over my life. I want to, this book starts with, I have loved you, declares the Lord, which is the foundation upon which our life is built upon. But don't think that love for you always means that he's pleased with how you're choosing to live your life. There's a life that can be lived that pleases him. And then there's the Lord's discipline. You'll choose, you'll choose which one you experience, a fear and awe of his name that leads to all sorts of changes in your life or the Lord's discipline, because as he says in the book of Hebrews, I discipline those I love. And because any good father does discipline his sons, you show me a dad that won't put any discipline. I ain't talking about whipping. I'm talking about any kind of discipline around his children. I'll show you a father that loves himself and hates his kids. No, to love is to long for, to love is to shape, to love is to discipline. Okay, now, um, this, is, this is the first moment in the book where like, uh-oh, something's gone wrong. Right? So a good way to think about Malachi in particular is Nehemiah is kind of the, the end of the story and Malachi is the last prophetic word before John the Baptist shows up on the scene and then here comes Jesus. So you read Nehemiah, you're like, there's the end of the story, but this is the last thing God's telling his people before 500 years of silence ensues, right? So it's intense because he loves them. Now, what I wanna do is I wanna start actually at the back half of our passage. I'm gonna start in chapter two, verse five. Here's why. Because anyone in Judah that heard this word from the Lord would have heard it through the lens of the Levitical covenant. But because most of us are not well versed in the Levitical covenant, I want to go there and talk about what the covenant was with Levi. And then we'll go back to the top so we can understand a lot of this because dung being wiped on the faces is pretty intense. Okay? So let's start in 2 Verse five, if you have your Bible, that's great. If not, I'm gonna throw it up on the screen. My covenant with him, that's Levi, was one of life and peace. And I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. Therefore, true instruction was in his mouth and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and the people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. So if you remember your Old Testament, maybe, maybe you don't, uh, we can read all about this in the book of Exodus. God delivers his people out of slavery once again with an indicative first. I loved you, now here's the law. Not, here's the law, get that right, and I'll love you. No, no, I love you, and then once we're in the wilderness, now, here's the law for life and human flourishing, right? We've got to keep the order correct. And so as he has moved the people towards the promised land, and as they begin to take over the promised land, he begins to give sections of the promised land to the tribes of Israel. Levi and his line do not get a parcel of land. They are set aside by God for the work of his service. They're going to run the tabernacle. They're going to run the temple. They're going to be the prophetic voice 
to the people of Israel as it comes to human flourishing in the order that God has established. They will receive the sacrifices. They will make the sacrifices. They will be a go-between between God and his people. This was not God's intent at the beginning. It was the people being so terrified that God would kill them all if they got near him that they asked for a go-between. So God leads his people out at the mountain. The people, uh, God comes towards the people and they beg Moses to go up instead of them because they were afraid that God might kill all of them. So you get this go-between between God and his people and it becomes the Levitical priesthood. So they're the ones that make the sacrifice. They're the ones that inspect the sacrifices that were meant to be made because he was supposed to be without blemish. It was supposed to be the best of what you had. And, and, and I, I think maybe you're at this point going, man, this sounds like a, a, a problem between you and the Lord, brother. I ain't no priest. This text seems like it's about you and how you do your job, not about me and how I do my job. And I'm glad that you brought that up because it's not actually true. So one of the big movements in scripture as the story of redemption kind of plays itself out is that God's plan, and this is going to be really important in the next couple of weeks, God's plan from day one is to establish a people for himself that are in right relationship with him and therefore right relationship with one another that he might display his wisdom and majesty to the world around us. Right? How does God reflect his glory and grandeur? Yes, through nature, but primarily through his people. So that what happens in the book of Exodus, you hear uh, God say, you will be for me a kingdom of priests. Now the Levites internally are going to serve that role, but you as my people serve that role to the rest of the world, which means you live in such a way, you talk in such a way, you spend your money in such a way, you marry in such a way, you have sex in such a way, you play in such a way that all the other nations look and see my wisdom and are drawn into it. That, that's, that's the plan. And here's what's crazy. That's what we're supposed to be. That's what we're supposed to be. That's what the church is supposed to be, as imperfect and as goofy as she is, which is, praise God, why it starts with the indicative, I have loved you. Us? Yeah, us. Like this? Uh-huh. But I'm not leaving you there. Right? And so this is the Levitical priesthood. But what happens is that you and I, as Christians, are now considered and called priests. Watch this. 1 Peter 2.5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a what? Holy priesthood. You see it. Come on. You see it. You, me, holy priesthood. So it's not like, hey, are you of the tribe of Levi? No, no, no. Are you a follower of Christ? Welcome to the priesthood. I'll keep going uh, again in verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. For what reason? That you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Do you see it? So that we, not me, we as the people of God are to live rightly with God in holy fear, rightly with one another in holy respect, in such a way that when the world sees us, they're drawn to the beauty of it. Why? Because what was the gift given to Levi? What does he turn people away from? What does he bring people into? Well, according to the passage, life and peace, and that he saves people from iniquity. What is iniquity? It's a trap. It's a bent. It's a way of living that ends in destruction. And so the priests, the people of God, live in such a way as to say, this is God's good design. Come on, there's room at the table. 
And so from here, what you see is God says, here's the covenant. That's vow language. I'm bringing life and peace, righteousness and human flourishing. And you, you'll bring fear and honor and respect and awe. And that will be the covenant that we have with one another. Now, this is hard for us, right? It is hard because we live, listen, I'm 49. I just grew up in a very different day than the one, like here, if you're younger, you, you might, this might be hard for you to imagine. If, if you called an adult by their first name when I was a kid, some random adult might punch you in the back of the head. I'm not saying that was right. I'm saying that's the way it was. Right? You ain't going to like your fifth grade teacher going, I'm sorry, Cheryl. I mean, that, that's just not happening. Right? I mean, that, I'm just telling you, like, random adults will whip you. Like, I just grew up in a day like it didn't need to be your folks. And, and, if, and if there was a situation in a store, no one would look at the mom and go, I wish she'd get her stuff together. They would like, can I help you? Can I pin this kid down? I'm not saying it was right. I'm saying it's the way that it was. And you and I live in a culture that has almost no honor for anything, no respect. There is no culture of honor left in the Western world. It has been hammered flat to our own detriment. There's no honor. There is no respect given to those who are do it. Gosh, teachers, we're praying for you tonight at Encounter. God bless you out there. Between parents and kids, I, I don't know how you do it. You are stronger and more gifted and more capable than I am because I'd be in the news a lot. So we're praying for you tonight at Encounter. It is a terrible day to try to serve in those kind of categories because there's no respect. There's no honor. There, there's no willingness to extend what God has set up as this is worthy of honor. So we live in this day and Jesus, like I already said, like this is what I'm doing right now is so, it's like you're not going to hear fear of the Lord. No, you're just not going to hear it. But you can't be all that you're meant to be without fear of the Lord. But I'm getting ahead in my message. So when we talk about the fear of the Lord, we're, we're not talking about a spirit of fear. That's condemned in the Bible. We're not to have a spirit of fear. We're to operate in holy fear. And this is what Charles Spurgeon says about that. He says, the fear of the Lord is the death of every other fear. Like a mighty lion, it chases all other fears before it. Now, I love this. Here's what he's saying. If your fear is rightly ordered, then you fear God. And if you fear God, you won't fear man. I, you know how many of us are jammed up right now because our predominant fear is one of the fear of man? You know how much debt is in this room because of the fear of man? Like trying to pretend for people you don't know and probably wouldn't like if you did. But you better get that car. Better get them clothes. Better get that house. That's fear of man. You know how many anxieties are in this room that would melt away if you could just see Christ in all his majesty? You know how small your big problems begin to be if you see God rightly? This is what Spurgeon's up to. You fear God rightly, he shows up like a lion, he drives away all the rabbits that you think are bears. This is Spurgeon's, and, and listen, this is everywhere in the Bible. This isn't an ancillary text. This isn't just the minor prophets that are so cranky. This is everywhere. The Apostle Paul says this to the church at Philippi, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The Greek word for that is tremble, trembling. Oh my gosh, you with me? He says to the church at Corinth, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness 
in our fear of God. The writer of Hebrews says, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Peter says, if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here with fear. How should we live on earth? In a holy, reverent fear of the creator of the universe. Jesus says this, hey, don't be afraid of those that can kill the body. Be afraid of the ones that can kill the body and the soul in torment. Keep going. No, let's just stop there because I'm, yeah. Now, here's some words. Here's some words from the New and Old Testament to describe our relationship with God. Mega fear, like capital F fear. Awe, terror, profound respect, trembling. Watch this one. Dread. But God help us, most of us are like Timothy. Just walking up to that grizzly, going, how are you doing? Love you, man. Thank you. God, let me give you a hug. You don't good game the king of kings and lord of lords. It's not what we're doing here. And, and any kind of diminishment of his authority, power, and majesty harms us, not him. It doesn't empty him of power, majesty, and authority. It robs us of all sorts of life. And here, here's the question at the beginning of our passage. I think it's a powerful one. Here's verse six. A son honors his father and a servant his master. Here's the question. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who despise my name. So how are the priests despising the name of God? Well, they were bringing lame sacrifices. They had been given by God all they need and all that God required. And rather than giving to God that which is God's, they kept for themselves that which they thought was theirs. And then they would offer up to God like this, this, this sacrifice that was sick or he's missing an eye or he, he was lame in a way that was unacceptable to present to God as the Holy One of Israel. And this is you and this is me when God gets the leftovers. Our life isn't about him. Two Sunday mornings a month are about him. Our life isn't about him. Bible reading for 30 minutes in the morning is about him. Our money's ours. Our time is ours. Our talent is ours. Our family is ours. And we begin to think. Here, let me, let me put it this way. And then I got to. You will never be grateful for what you think you're entitled to. Ever. And you puff up your chest like you're the one that's built the world you're in. You rob yourself. And you, according to this text, profane the name of God. He is the author and perfecter of every good thing. So let's talk about the fear of the Lord. By the way, when the Bible says to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, here's what it means. It's a term that describes how our efforts in cooperation with and empowered by the Holy Spirit bring to full maturity what Jesus freely provided for us. Did you hear the pieces there? So, so what does it look like to work out our salvation with fear and trembling? That's the command. Well, what it means is we are cooperating by the power of the Holy Spirit, right? To align ourselves up with what God is doing in our lives for an outcome of, I'm, I'm going to just keep calling it human flourishing. 
That's what the Bible means when it says work out our salvation. So it's not sitting on the couch and hoping you get godly. It's being aggressive towards sin. It's being serious about pressing into his presence. It's about standing in reverent awe of his name. And it's having a smidge of holy fear. You ever been to the Grand Canyon? Anybody? Who's been to the Grand Canyon? Oh, man, look at us. We're a traveling bunch. Okay, listen. The, the closest I know to get to the feeling of human fear, or holy fear, is standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon. It's not complete because the Grand Canyon can't come to life and destroy the universe. But that moment when you feel tiny and it, it's, a little ter- it's a little scary, like you feel so small and all of your accomplishments vanish. Right? Like nobody, nobody's standing in front of the Grand Canyon going, got my master's degree. <laughs> right? Man, I've really built a life I'm proud of. All of that vanishes. And here's the thing, I'm being honest. There's this little tinge of, oh my gosh, I really am small and insignificant. And yet, and this brings me to my first point about the fear of the Lord, there's something really attractive and drawing about that, which is my first point around the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is invitational. The fear of the Lord is not repulsive, it's invitational. Like when Timothy sees the bear, he doesn't think, oh, that thing is disgusting. He's like, look at the power and the ferocity and the majesty, and there was something that drew him into it. He'd still be here if he hadn't lost respect for and stopped having awe of and decided not to pat it on its head, but to give it honor where honor was due. And that, that moment when you stand in front of the Grand Canyon or you stand at the base of Everest or you, or you stand in front of, you know, two-story-sized swells in the ocean and watch them slam down into the beach, you get a sense of, oh, no, no, this is holy fear. And it's invitational. It draws us in. Like the fear of the Lord is not repulsive. It makes us move towards him. And here's why I think that is. Like the, the fear of the Lord is actually the greatest force of confidence, comfort, and protection available to us. The, the more I fear the Lord, the more I'm free to serve you well, to serve my wife well, to serve my kids well, without performing for anyone. Like, if I see the Lord rightly, what are you going to do to me? Not like me? Find another church? Say some mean things about me on the internet? I mean, seriously, what are you going to do? Show up at my house, try to beat me up? Like, what, how, how's this end? Like, I, I become, like, oriented in a completely different direction than that. No, I belong to the Lord, and, and, and the Lord is my Father, and, and I'm giving honor to my Father, and he is the king, and I'm giving honor to the king, and the king is sovereign over the whole universe, and vengeance is his. And he loves me as a son, and he'll handle the business for me. I need to only orient my life around his fear. So the fear of God, it's invitational. It's not repulsive. It calls you in Your heart is hungry for it, whether you know it or not. There's an ache that takes place when you feel what I'm talking about. In the same way, if you go to the Grand Canyon, there's going to be an ache in your soul. You stand at the, you you get to the highest peak of Colorado and you look at, there'll be an ache there. You you stand in front of a real ocean, not the Gulf of Mexico, like the real one when it's angry and you watch it slamming down and you, you, you think, no way I'm getting in that. Like you'll feel that moment of this is so powerful and so amazing and there'll be an ache in you to participate in it that will eventually be fulfilled when Christ has made all things new. So the fear of the Lord is invitational. But the fear of the Lord is also the beginning of wisdom. So this is Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools 
despise wisdom and instruction. So let me, I'm, I'm trying to be the least amount offensive I can be while still telling the, the truth, you know, without apology. Part of this is about how God has ordered and designed the universe to work, right? So the fear of the Lord, majesty, honor, respect, trembling is the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge. Anybody have a friend, or maybe you even put yourself in that category, who's really, really smart, but has made a train wreck of their life? Look, my hand, I'll do it for me, right? So this isn't saying a fear of the Lord makes you a really smart person. You can be really smart and really jack up your life. He's saying a fear of the Lord, to see Christ rightly is the beginning of knowledge. What does he mean here? That the commands of God, as he has revealed them to us, go back to what God is up to, to have a people that are a picture of his perfect, loving governance so that the world might see the wisdom and be brought into it. This is the thou shalts and thou shalt nots. This is God saying, here's how I designed it to work. And the Bible says, not Pastor Matt, the Bible says, if you look at that and go, whatever, that you're a fool. One of my favorite things to just keep an eye on as I'm drinking in all this stunning amount of information that's available to us is how often science catches up to something the Bible's been talking about forever or or science catches up to like a a clear moral teaching of the scriptures. Uh, Here would be a great one. Um, And Andrew Huberman, who I don't know if you watch, he's just a brilliant guy out of Stanford. He's like, we've just learned by studying the brain. If you take a day off every week and you unplug and you spend some time getting in an ice bath that your whole life will change. You're like, oh yeah, yeah, we've had that for a few thousand years, Andrew, thank you. (laughs) But how about this one? This is a newer one. This is neuroscience, not, not some Christian ethicist. On our sexual ethic, the more sexual partners you have before you land on your life partner, the harder it will be for you to connect spiritually and emotionally in a deep way with that partner. So could it be that God's sexual ethic is not about taking from you, but giving you that thing you actually really want if you would just be patient and fear his name? And we could go on and on and on here. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But a fool will say, whatever, I'm going to do it my own way. Like if, you just, if we could just be honest, and I'm not even pretending we can do that. Like, like how much of the pain in your life has been brought around by just you being your own God. You're just doing whatever you want. You're spending your money like you want, looking at your marriage like you want, treating your kids like you want, doing your, like, I'm just going to do it my way. I'm going to be my own God. Like how much heartbreak has been born of your life by you trying to be this thing you got? How, how much has it been brought about by you trying to cuddle with the lion of Judah rather than submit to his clearly ordained plan for human flourishing? Lastly, the fear of the Lord is pleasing to the Lord. So this will be, I don't think this is controversial, but I need to say it quickly. Let's make some eye contact. And if you're a parent, you're with me. If you're not yet, you will be when you, I'm not trying to create categories here, just, well, you're a kid, maybe you'll see it because you're, I'm sorry. (laughs) I don't, I've got at least, I've got two kids in this room nothing they would be able to do to make me stop loving them. They do not have the power, and I've been tested. (laughs) 
I, I get a call, police like, hey, killed a guy. I'm like, dang it, read. And then I would go, it'd probably be Audrey actually, but I would go and, uh, and then I'd be like, Smoops, why you kill that man? And then she'd be like, he lame trousers. And I'd just be like, okay, I love you. Let's try to get you a good lawyer. You're going to visit you. Prison ministry at the village. And um, I, I don't think there's anything she could do to make me stop love her. Nora, you're in the room. Rena, like, you just can't. You lack the ability to take out of my heart what God put in my heart towards you. You're, you're mine, ride or die, till the day I die. Doesn't matter to me which direction your life goes. I'm, I'm, you're my people. Um, and that love is strong enough to hold at times what will be my disappointment in how you choose to live your life. And there is a way according to the Bible to live your life that pleases God. And there's a way to live your life that brings about God's discipline in your life. Let me just show you this quickly. This is 2 Corinthians. I have a bunch here, but I'm, I'm done, done. 2 Corinthians 5, 9. So whether we are home or away, we make it our aim to please him, Colossians 1.10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Let us bear fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Do you, do you see the, the arguments? Like live a life that's pleasing to him. The fear of the Lord, one that says he is worthy of all honor and praise, that the trembling before his majesty in that it does not, what you think about God does not diminish or add to God at all. He is God wholly separate from you and he is coming and we will stand and give an account for our lives and there's a way to live right now that pleases him or provokes his discipline, not because he's mad at you, but because he loves you. And the Lord disciplines those he loves, but the right posture should be as best I can by the grace of God, knowing his love will hold. Let me live a life that's pleasing to him, which makes me serious about putting sin to death. I want to live into, like I know he sees everything. Do you believe that? Do you believe he actually sees your motives? That he sees your words? That he sees your actions? Do you believe that? And yet how many of us, our offering is like these sick, broken, busted, stolen sheep. It's not my life. And listen, here's why I just think you should, we should stop. Let's make eye contact. You got to hear this. This God who's this fierce still looks at you today. I don't care how you walk in. And his lead foot is still love. Like his lead foot is still to move towards you. Like me saying this today about the fear of God shouldn't provoke in you some anger towards me. The whole banner under which this is being said is that God loves you so much he won't leave you there and he loves you so much he wants to turn your eyes up to his majesty so you'd stop being afraid, you'd stop being broken and you'd take serious those things that are killing you right now and walk in freedom. This is the fear of the Lord. Man, this little pom-pom spirit-sprinkled Jesus that's all over evangelicalism right now is killing us. No wonder the world doesn't respect us. We don't look any different. We just don't, the data's there. We just don't look any different. What would it be like for holy fear to set in on the people of God? Two steps forward and then I've, I've got to be done. Here's the first one. The first step in developing holy fear is wholehearted worship. Let me, another unfortunate piece to the time in which we live is that worship means singing to us. That's not what that word means in the book. It means attention. Attention and wait. Wholehearted worship. My attention 
is on you. So part of what it means to fear the Lord, here's the way I've tried to say it. I think it just works. Jesus is not asking to be the number one priority in your life. He's asking to be the piece of paper that you wrote your priorities on. He's not a thing of many. He's the thing over all. Wholehearted worship, it's what he demands. I'm using the right word. It's what he demands. Not what he requests. He's like, here's what I'm going to do, life and peace. Just bring me whatever you got left over after you serve yourself. That's not what's happening. He demands wholehearted worship. It's the thing that pleases him. And the second thing, and this is very similar, but it's language that I'm trying to get into the deeper parts of you. All of life for all of life. So the question is this morning, as we kind of orient our heart around this kind of heavy word, and we get ready to head out of here, is where are the areas of my life that, that Jesus has become kind of this little cuddly thing that I can pat on the head and give just a bit of myself to? Where are those areas that I have, like Timothy, provoked and belittled the bear and expect him to just be cool with it? Where do I live like God doesn't see and God doesn't care? And God doesn't expect and God hasn't made a way. Where, where am I operating in ways that I know are sinful? I know are outside of God's design and call on my life. And I just think God's okay. I'm the exception to the rule. That, man, I'm not any worse than anybody else. I'm looking around. Everybody else got something like that. And we start, start to belittle him. Defile his name is the text. Live in such a way as to say he's not that big of a deal. And what an opportunity this morning to return to a fear of the Lord. To ask the Holy Spirit to establish him as the King of kings and Lord of lords over your life. Christian, what are those areas? Like, this is written to, this is written to the people of God. Like, it always begins with us first. So has there been drift? I, I'm... I'm 30 years, and I'm so tired of the drift in my life, so tired of how frequently I'll wake up and go, dang it, how'd I get back here? I thought I was all the way up here. Anybody else? Yeah, so this is like an ongoing habitual repentance cycle in my life. Like when I study to preach, am I really trying to study hard and like provoke my spirit to preach what's true, or am I just kind of leaning on natural gifting? Like where do I fear the Lord? Do I hate some of the thoughts I still get? <laughs> I will catch myself thinking crazy stuff, man. Anybody else? Like, I mean, I'm thinking, man, like if anybody ever read that in my mind, canceled. <laughs> and I'm 30 years in. Where, where am I watching that and going, no, 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 I don't want that. I hate that about me. Jesus, will you continue to mature me to where that's not my first impulse? That's not my first compulsion. That's not even my second or third. That you would eradicate that from my heart. And I'm going to keep praying that prayer all the way to glory. Will you continue to form me into the image of Christ? Will you continue to nurture my soul as I'm so dumb and you're so generous? And would you continue, like, what, what does it look like to orient your heart around that this morning? And so here's what I want to do. I'm just going to give you a moment. Why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes and the end of our service today, we're going to have some men and women that are up front. They'll be here for you to pray for you. But for now, before we move to communion, I, like even at, even at the Lord's table, the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians and says, don't, don't do this in a manner that's not worthy. He, he's saying, don't flippantly come to the table. Like your salvation was purchased for you with blood, with death, 
with agony. This is no small thing. This is the Son of God, co-eternal with the Father, that condescended, gave his life for you. So here's just my question to give you. I'm just going to give you a minute here. What do you need to like lay at his feet? Just in a quiet moment of reflection, say, I have held on to this in ways that belittle your name. Forgive me. I want to lay this down. I want to fear your name. Flood my heart and my soul with gravity and gladness. Father, I thank you for these men and women. Gosh, I know even in study this week, this thing was like a hammer on my life. And so maybe they're here and aren't even sure what to do with the feelings they're feeling right now. God, I just pray that they would sense the sweetness of conviction, the sweetness of your love for them, that even in the belittlement of your name, as we've lived our lives, even as we've like given you the, the leftovers, that your disposition towards us is still, I have loved you, declares the Lord. That's a kind of love that's hard for us. At some level, our love is kind of like, yeah, it's reciprocated in a, in a kind of similar way, and yet your love is, it's just there as a covenant. You've sworn by yourself. You've captivated us by your mercy. And so now I just ask, Holy Spirit, You'd grant us more and more and more the gift of holy fear that transforms our life. It is an invitation. And it's the beginning of wisdom, and it pleases you. And so let us live lives that are pleasing to you, that we might be a picture of your mercy and grace and power, that, that we might seem to the world those who have been blessed with fullness of life. We thank you that the sacrifice of Christ has made all of this possible. And it's for your beautiful name I pray. Amen.